Okay, well, good evening. I uh, visited with him for a minute today. He's in Montana tonight at uh, the church. I don't know where it is exactly, but I think it might be in Billings. Ah, wherever uh, Pastor Jared is, that's where he is tonight. <coughs> So tonight we are uh, going to take a look at um, Hebrews chapter 12, really concentrated on verse 1, but 1 and 2. We're not going to start there, though. We're going to start in chapter 11. I'm going to try to buzz through chapter 11 just to give us some perspective. I uh, I debated uh, talking a little bit about children's ministry because of our uh, recent camps and the involvement there. There's a really interesting article, or it's actually a letter, that Macintosh writes in... Uh, one of his books, I think it was probably 1860s, a long time ago. Uh, maybe I'll read it. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> I really like it. But before we do anything, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that we have through his death, burial, and resurrection. Just pray for wisdom and direction, even as we look in your word tonight, and that your word could find a root and lodgment in our hearts, that we could see you in a more clear and perfect way, that we could walk and talk with you during the day, allow the Spirit of God to guide and direct our lives, that through it all, Jesus Christ would be uplifted and exalted, and souls would be saved. I ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, camp is a wonderful ministry, and what you see is uh, hearts. You know, young hearts that are open and receptive to truth. And I decided I am going to read this. This is a this is a killer. You should never read something out of a book over the pulpit, but I'm going to do it. Okay, this is Macintosh replying to uh, some correspondence that he had gotten. It doesn't say who. It doesn't make any difference. But he starts by saying, We are truly thankful to hear that you have commenced the Sunday school. We count it a real privilege to have allowed to comply with your request for a word of counsel as to the mode of it working. The longer we live, the more highly we prize the blessed work of Sunday school teaching. We look upon it as most interesting and delightful, and we believe that every assembly of Christians gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus should support such work with their sympathy and prayers. Some, we are sorry to say, exhibit much lukewarmness in reference thereto, and others seem to disapprove of such work altogether. 
They look upon it as an interference with the duty devolving upon Christian parents to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This, we own, would be a grave objection were it well-founded. But it is not so, for the Sunday school is not designed to interfere with, but to assist or supply the total lack of parental teaching and training. There are thousands of dear children in alleyways, courtyards of our large cities and towns that have no parents or parents utterly unwilling to instruct them. It is on these that the Sunday school teacher fixes his benevolent eye. No doubt he is glad to see all sorts occupying his benches. Should not these be looked after? Is it not a good work to gather such once a week for a couple of hours in order to store their young minds with precious truths from God's Word? Texts of Scripture, sweet hymns, which may leave an impress upon them, no lapse of time shall ever efface. No, we most thoroughly believe it's so, and with all our heart we wish God's speed to everyone engaged in it. It is impossible to tell where and when the fruit of a Sunday school teacher's work may turn up. It may be on the burning sands of Africa or amid the frozen regions of the north, in the depths of the forest or the ocean's wave. Maybe at the present time, or maybe years after the workman has gone to his eternal rest. But let it be when and where it may, the fruit will assuredly be found. When the seed has been sown in faith and watered by prayer, it may be that the Sunday school pupil will grow up to be a wicked youth, a wicked man. He may seem to have forgotten every good and holy and true to have worn out by his sinful practices every sacred impression. And yet, notwithstanding all, some precious clause of Scripture or some sweet hymn remains buried in the depths of memory. Beneath a mass of folly and profanity, and this Scripture or this hymn may come to mind in some quiet moment, or it may be on a dying bed, be used by the Holy Spirit for the quickening and saving of a soul. Who can attempt to define the importance of getting hold of a mind when it is young and seeking to impress it with heavenly things? So, 1860, long time ago, and that same idea is true. Young people have you know, obviously are impressionable, but that you never know when what the ministry, the effects of the ministry that camp or Sunday school or Bible school, any of those things have. All right, so that's enough of that. So look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Again, I need to go through this quickly, but I wanted to go through it just to give the background for chapter 12. 
Now he starts in verse 1. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And we see that faith is just a conviction or a confidence in something that's not proven. Now in 2, he says, for by it the elders obtained a good report. And the good report or witness is not their actions. The actions are an expression of their faith. Depending on Christ in difficult life situations is why these individuals, the witness that they're going to provide. Then three talks about the created acts. But four through uh, 31 now, he starts with by faith. Man acts in faith and God acknowledges that effort in him. So he starts with Abel. And Abel's testimony in verse 4 is that he followed God's plan. So his testimony is based on the gift that he gave in faith, not on his character. In verse 5, Enoch, interesting, doesn't talk about what he did at all, but it talks about the effects of his walking by faith. You know, he got a, a reprieve, if you will, from physical death. And it's the, the way it's written, it's a continual positive attitude. Enoch walked with God, says in Genesis 5.22. Enoch walked with God, and because of that, God allowed him not to die. Now in verse 6, talks about, you know, Actually, the rewarder in the end, he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Again, it speaks of a constant desire to be in fellowship with God. And seven talks about Noah, but it starts with Noah moved with fear. The first thing he did is to, not an action, but a focus on the greatness of God. And then he carried out what God had him to do. And verse 8 starts talking about Abraham. And he was called to go to a place not knowing whether he went. Imagine that interview you have with Abraham. Well, where are you going? And he said, I have no idea. But I'm going anyway because this is what God asked me to do. Then 9, there's my light here. He uh, talks about following him, sojourn there. He's a stranger in the land. And even though it's the land that was promised to him, calls himself a sojourner because he knows it's not his permanent home. 10 tells us why that's true. 
He looks for a city with no foundation. And 11, it talks about Sarah. Now, Sarah wasn't always, neither was Abraham, neither was anyone, but uh, someone who walked by faith. But here it's described, none of the rest of it's mentioned. It talks about her walking by faith. So 12 gives us that the faithfulness of Abraham comes with a, a blessing at the end. Now in 13, he says, these all died in faith. And then he gives a few clauses. And we see, first of all, that they died in faith. The point in time they believed God's promise of a redeemer. Now they died before realizing the promise. But it doesn't make the promise untrue. It means that they are waiting for the enablement of it. The third thing we see is that They embraced them, he says. They've accepted them as their own. The promise of God of a Redeemer. And lastly, their witness, I spelled that wrong, was that they had a heavenly home and that the earthly existence was only a temporary stop. Now as we follow 14 through 16... All, they says, these all had a heavenly focus versus an earthly focus. Then 17 and 18 are interesting. They talk about Abraham again offering Isaac. Abraham offered Isaac and was going to offer Isaac because God had promised that through his seed, the nation would be blessed. Well, if Isaac was his seed, then he knew that God was going to carry that out. And that's what it says in 19. The basis of his confidence, because he knew that God was going to take care of him. Then 20, 21, you know, Isaac... Jacob, all the way to Joseph. It's interesting, when you get to Joseph, actually all three of them, it's not, like, especially with Joseph, what does it, what does it say? By faith what? When he died, they made mention of the parting and commandment of his bones. So what's the faith? What's the faith action? If we're looking for action always, what's the action there for Joseph? That he told him to bring his bones with him when they left? Why is God holding Joseph up? Because he exercised faith. He walked by faith. Then we go through Moses. His character and his relationship with God. You get to 24... When he was come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
He made a decision to follow God's direction and divorce himself from the most prominent position in the entire world. And so that's mentioned in verse 25, even 26. What's the focus? It's on what's real, what has real value and is worth living for. 27 talks about him going, leaving Egypt. All their journey through 28, 29, I'm not going to... We have to go through this quickly or we won't get to the meat. 30, it talks about the walls of Jericho. 31, about Rahab, but it's all by faith. Every claw, every sentence starts with, by faith. And then he gets to 32 and he says, what could I say more? There's more and more examples that I could give, that's what he's saying, of people who walk by faith. And the list of things accomplished, 33 and 34, it's through God's provision. And then you get to 39, we'll skip a little bit. And he said, these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise. Now the description of all, it's in each and every case. They were the recipients of a good reward or they were witnesses not because of what they had done but because each and every one was acting or operating by faith. Now in 40 he says the Old Testament saints they were here for their faith in a future redemption. We have something much better. And so we start verse 12, or excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And so he starts with wherefore. In light of the evidence of the value of walking by faith. Literally saying, for this reason. And then he lists things for us to do. So what's the reason? Well, he spent the entire chapter 11, the previous chapter, showing us the value of walking by faith. So in light of that evidence, now he says, the cloud of witnesses. Now, they're not observers, but they're those who have gone before us. They operated in faith. And having that cloud of witnesses, that testimony of the value of walking by faith. He goes on to say that. He goes on to give us a couple of exhortations. Let's see what I put in this thing. He starts with 
let us. Let us. And really that's simple. It says don't don't stop this from happening, really. Don't stop this from happening in your life or don't impede God, the Holy Spirit, from working in your life. And so then he tells two things. He says we should lay aside... Oh, that's good too. Two things. Every weight and the sin, he says. And then... Later on, we're told to run. Now, the lay aside here in verse 1 is to put off or to put aside. And the idea really is to strip off everything that hinders you. And to run, the, the ultimate end we're going to get to is to run. The first exhortation is for you to be able to run. You should lay aside these two things. Now, we're involved in the action, but we are not. This is not active. This is not an active verb. We are not to seek to lay aside. We are to focus our eye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And allow the Word of God to dwell in us richly. And then the Spirit of God will be able to work within us to make these kinds of things that we're going to go over happen in our lives. It's a call to allow Him to work and not to cling to the things. Now again, there's two different things listed in did this once before, but I, I looked at it and I thought, I'm going to do this again, but it's a little different. Now, weight here is any kind of burden. And it's, in this context, it's any hindrance, any worldly hindrance or any competition for our time. Now, you can do this, uh, silly whatever it's called, but you can come up with some ideas here of what this weight is. So the first one I titled self-worth. It's really self-esteem. Uh, the point is there's a great emphasis placed on knowing or having or promoting self-worth. The truest sense I think that concept is probably fine. The problem is we don't have a self-worth problem. We have an over-worth problem. Now, there's admonitions given us in the Word of God. In Galatians 6.23, says, For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then Romans 12:3 For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought 
but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now what happens over worth really is pride. You can keep your finger here, but turn to Proverbs. We'll look at two uh, passages in Proverbs about pride, and there's lots of them. The view of ourselves definitely should not be a prideful one, but one because God desires humility. And so Proverbs 16, verse 18, I forgot to give you that. says, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you turn a few pages to Proverbs 29 and look at verse 23. Does a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. You think about it, God empowers us and strengthens us and keeps us. And you have to ask yourself, what is there then for me to be so proud of? There's two more verses about pride. If I got them in this thing. Yeah, look at that. First Samuel fifteen, seventeen. Well, now it was little in thine own sight, was thou not made head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. Problem is, he didn't remain little in his own sight. And First Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up. So that could be self-worth. Now, worldly enjoyments, again, these are just categories made out of that word weight. But worldly is referring to or devoted to the world or its pursuits. And you know, there's all kinds of activities. And I know Pastor Gus says this all the time. There's all kinds of things that we enjoy doing. And in themselves, not one of them, well, majority of them, are not bad. They're not detrimental to us. The problem is really twofold. One is, can we maintain a proper attitude in them? And so this verse, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the second thing is, How much time do they take? Because here we see, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awaken out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Now we think about the end of our lives, whether by death or rapture, and every day is one day closer no matter what. Every day we check off on the calendar is a day we'll never get back. So what will we replace those days with? 
in Ephesians 5.15, he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Redeeming the time, buying it back. What are we buying the time with? What are we paying? What are we getting for our time? Often, not very much in eternal value. All right, the next one that I made from that word is self-indulgence. Now, really, it's just yielding to desires. It's not that much different than one we already looked at. But, you know, we can't, we just cannot allow our flesh to dictate what we do. And so I looked up these couple of verses. It says, for if you live after the flesh, you'll die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. You shall have real life, real life, a life that's worth living. Now, you look at 1 John 2. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the key here is the world passes away. And that lust, that desire, will also pass away. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. doesn't mean he lives forever. What he means is doing the will of God has value that won't go in the grave. Proper perspective on our flesh should be, well, look at, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse... 25. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertain. So fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it in subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I think I have that when we talk about running at the end too. But that's a proper direction for our lives. In Romans 13, 14, he says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the loss thereof. Now, it's interesting. I think it was the last time I was here. I can't remember. But Numbers 11, the nation of Israel gets to a point, and it's, it's described as 
the nation felt a lusting and they yearned for the leeks and the garlic and the, the meats and, of Egypt. And their mind rolled back to all that had been provided for them, but not to the fact that they were slaves and worked, you know, to make the pyramids, really, and all those things. But point being, we're not that different. We yearn often for things of the flesh. I, I couldn't, I, I wanted to, but I couldn't read two things over the pulpit. You're not supposed to read any. You know. There's one, though, Macintosh, same author, in Numbers 11, Notes on the Pentateuch. He describes the nation of Israel's turning to, returning in their minds to Egypt as... Christians turning and yearning for things of the flesh. And the, the line that he puts is how it is ever sad to think that Christ is not enough. And that's our attitude. Christ is not enough. All right, there's a couple more. Greed. When you think about greed, you know, it's obviously an excess desire to acquire. There's three questions. How many things do we have? How many things do we want? Well, how many things do we need? There's nothing wrong with having things. But what does God tell us that he will supply all of our need? according to his riches and glory by Christ. If our attitude is right, then we can be content and thankful for what we have, no matter what it is. He's able to provide abundantly. I don't know where you are, but turn to Ephesians 3.20. says, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. And then you see in 1 John, or excuse me, John 15, when he talks about abiding, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. See, the problem is not the supplier. It's not the supply. It's the problem is always us. Because we don't abide. We're not asking in prayer. We're not thinking with divine viewpoint And so you go to a verse like James chapter 4. Look at that. 4.1. He says, From whence come wars and fighting among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? 
You lust and you have not, you kill and desire to have and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you have not because you ask not. Now you ask, but you receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. We cannot continue to long for more and more things. Never be satisfied. Never be thankful. Greed is just that attitude. It's the complete opposite of what the Spirit of God seeks to promote within us a contentment. That we can be content with such things that we have says that in Hebrews I already did that yeah, that's not it he says it in uh, Hebrews 13.5 let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have for he hath said I will never leave thee nor forsake thee and then in 1 Timothy 6, 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. And you know, our view of contentment is, well, I really wanted this, but I guess this that thing that I got is okay. It's not biblical contentment. Biblical contentment is no matter what. God has provided a perfect place for me. The Lord has me right here and now, right where he wants me. And so at this moment, it couldn't be any better. All right, the last one is false. No, it's not the last. second to last one is false humility. And really, it's just, you know, we corral our flesh. We put up a facade. This is working in your, on your own strength to make yourself better or look better than you are. And we can stop certain outward acts. This is a self-righteous cleanup effort. And the focus is on actions. And that's why I took all that time in chapter 11 to say their witness was not what they did. It was that they operated by faith. What they did was the byproduct of walking by faith. You can't put the cart before the horse. Any good thing accomplished in our lives will be accomplished through Jesus Christ. For it is God that work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We don't seek to strap on or lace up the boots and get to work in a self-reformation. That is, I mean, that's just as nauseating to God, maybe more so than not doing anything.
So the last thing is not doing anything. It's trifling. It's lacking any substance or work. And really, it it really means wasting our time. Now, the Lord has chosen us. Imagine that. The God of the universe has chosen to use man to accomplish his purpose on this earth. Knowing that God is an all-wise, all-knowing God, you couldn't say this, but I would say, how foolish was that? I mean, we are prone to fail. And not only that, we are professional time killers. Killing time. What are you doing? Just killing time, waiting. Waiting for what? And so there's a few verses. We went over this once before, but it's high time to awake out of our sleep. It's time. We don't have a lot of time. We can't waste it. So we went over this one too, but redeeming the time. Buy back the time. Utilize your time. And he says it again in Colossians. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. So what's the point of going through all of those? You know, anyone with an objective, a, a burning desire, a passion in their life, will apply themselves to accomplishing their objective. You think about it, you can use any illustration you want, but if you're running a race and you put a 100-pound pack on your back, Unless you're someone very special, you're going to be negatively impacted in your ability to run. These weights and the description of them, you can describe them any way you would like. The weight is an unnecessary encumbrance that will cause you to fail to be able to run the way you could have. You would not put on a 100-pound pack and try to swim because you'd drown. Why would we then, why would we encumber ourselves with all these things, that worldliness around us? You know, we make decisions every day, every hour, every minute. What's the basis do we make them? Well, it won't matter much. It's only a little thing. I need to have some fun. Our perspective should be not that it won't hurt much, but how will it help? Adding weight is a poor choice before we run the race. And now that's the second thing, running the race. Because in, uh, turn back to Hebrews 11, or excuse me, 12, 1. And it starts with and, well, it doesn't start with and, but he says, lay aside every weight 
and the sin that thou so easily beset us. Now here it's characterized as the sin. Oh, you think Paul is saying that there's only one sin? There's only one thing that causes us, in a sense, to miss the mark of God's perfect holiness and righteousness. It's described for us here as a sin or the sin that easily beset us, that is skillfully surrounding us. Now, it's indicative of a common sin, and I think the common sin is unbelief, which easily trips us up. Now, there's those who would say that it's not unbelief, but some common manifestation of sin in anyone's life, and everyone's would be different, but something that easily trips us up. Well, there's merit to that description. But if you look back, and that's the other reason I did it, if you look back to chapter 11, he spent an entire chapter talking about walking by faith. And then he says in 12, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us. And I believe that's unbelief. I believe we, our biggest failure is we fail to trust God. We fail to believe that he's the God that can keep all of his promises. We fail to believe that he will do all those things we looked at in those verses previously. And that by exercising our faith, we can have peace and contentment in a life that has none of it around us. That we can live above the fray. That we can walk in, in the world without the world walking in us. Because our focus is different. And I think having exhorted us to change our focus and have our focus correct and then trust God for his direction, then he can say, run. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. All right. So run is the next thing he asks us to do. And that's an active. It's actually, a, but it's subjunctive. We may or may not run. I know Merriman says, by laying aside every weight and sin, then we can run. Now, Paul speaks of running in 1 Corinthians nine twenty four. Let's turn there because I think I goofed this PowerPoint up. 1 Corinthians 9.24, and we looked at this before too, but in the context now of thinking of racing, know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain. 
And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run not as uncertain, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that at any means, when I have preached to others, I should be a castaway or disapproved. Now, has no relation to positional truth. He's talking about testimony, just like he talked about testimony in Hebrews 11. So we run with patience. We run with earnestness. That's what that is. And the focus of the believer is to have an earnestness. And every day is important. Every moment of our days are important. We need to run the race that is set before us. We need to have the focus right. I read a book, and in it, Theodore Epp told a story of meeting an author of a hymn, and the hymn said, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And what he said in the story that made it significant is that the author was blind. All she could see was darkness. But she saw the Lord clearly, and she had an inner eye of faith. And that's why... Yeah, that's wrong. You know, in Matthew 6.22, he says, The eye of the body is the... Oh, excuse me. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body is full of darkness. So we have to have a single eye set on Jesus Christ. And we need to walk in that focus, the race, the contest that is set or placed before us. We are in a race against time. The time is our lives. And the race is how that time will be spent. Paul explains that in a few verses, I find him on the right spot. Acts twenty twenty four. but none of these things move me, rather count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of grace. And then in Philippians 3, it says, not as though I had already attained Either we're already perfect, but I follow after. I have my focus right that I may be apprehended, for which also I'm apprehended of Christ Jesus. I count not myself to have apprehended or finished. But this one thing I do, I'm not looking backwards. I'm forgetting those things that are behind. And I have a focus. I'm reaching forward under the things that are before and I press toward the mark for the prize of the hall calling of God in Christ Jesus. I don't know if I have it on here, but 
tells us that we should finish. Our eye should be on the finish. We're going to spend our time. We're going to go to be with the Lord. What will be accomplished? He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. Earlier he said, oh, that I could finish my course. Now he said, I have finished my course. Last book that he wrote. I have kept the faith. Hence for me is laid up a crowd of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. Our work here is to be focused and to expand our energies following the direction that God has set before us. So we are to run with patience the race that is set before us. Continually moving ahead, truly never looking back. Now, verse 2, we just have a few, at least I have a few comments about that, not as much. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, turning our eyes to Jesus. That's just what the hymn said. We run with our eyes fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our race, this earthly life, is lived with our focus correct, our eyes on the our eyes on Jesus Christ. And what's interesting here, the way it's described, he is the author. He is the one that not only is an example for us, but he is the creator of them. He is the creator of the way. Let's see if I have it in here. Nope. Never mind. I don't know. I should. So, turn to Hebrews 2. You're in Hebrews 12. Look at verse 10. Well, you might be in Hebrews 12. Talking about Christ as the author. He says in verse 10 of chapter 2, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The captain, obviously, here is the author of not only the creator, but he's also the refiner. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So our faith is placed in Christ. Our focus is on him. He's the exempt of faith walking by faith even on this earth, but he is the creator of faith as God. And not only is he the creator, but he is, calls here the finisher, and that's perfecter. Christ is the perfection of faith, and therefore a perfect example of walking by faith. Not thy will, not my will, but thy will be done, he prays in the garden. And there's a joy, he says, for the, a, for the completion of God's will for him, even the sacrifice, even his death on the cross was joy. 
having endured, having been despised, those are results. But he's seated on the right hand of God at the end. And walking by faith has been illustrated for us in chapter 11 and here by Christ himself as the key to pleasing our Father and provides the enjoyment. The enjoyment is a close association with Jesus Christ in our daily walk. And so he says in 12.1, read it again, but wherefore seeing we're also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. In light of the witness, in light of Christ's witness, we've been called to lay aside the human encumbrances and not in our own strength. They will fall by the wayside as our eye is fixed on Jesus Christ. As we're occupied with the Word of God, if the Word of God is in our thinking and we're focused upon it, then we will see with divine viewpoint and not human. And therefore, all those crazy things we went through will be gone. And it's not not a sprint, but a marathon. And the idea is to run with race that is set before us, desiring to live for Christ, the realization that the victory has already been promised. We would simply walk by faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for all that we have in Christ. Thank you for your word and thank you for a, what a plan, what, what a vision you have for mankind how you provide for us at every turn if we simply would trust you. Simply would allow your word to dwell in us so that we can walk in newness of life. That we can walk in a way that will bring honor and glory to Christ. Let's pray for that would be our aim in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm at the uh, end of my expertise here with this thing.